Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the first 2024 We're All Gonna Die radio broadcast. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody. I'm John Wolfstall, your host. Uh, sadly, my regular partner in crime, David Rothkoff, the CEO and Grand Poobah of Deep Steep Radio, is away today. Um, so he's going to miss a really fantastic conversation with uh, my regular colleague, Heather Williams. Hello, Heather. Hi, John. And uh, we're really excited to be joined by my daytime partner in crime, Hans Christensen, who is the director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists. Good afternoon, Hans. Hey, John. Thanks for the invitation. No worries. So uh, full disclosure, I work at the Federation of American Scientists. So does Hans. I've assured him nothing he says today will uh, increase or decrease his salary on a weekly basis. Um, but um, given what we wanted to talk about today, there's really nobody better than Hans to join us. Um, I don't know about you, Heather. I was sort of hoping for a nice, calm slide into 2024. Um, and uh, things are kind of nuts here in Washington around a couple of issues in particular, uh, China being one of them, um, and uh, the nuclear chain of command. I know something that people talked a lot about over Christmas dinner, um, given the uh, really, I think, uh, no other way to say it, but sort of unprofessional uh, disappearance and departure of uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin for about a week in early January, which has really re-sparked this question about um, who is in the chain of command and how does it all work. Um, and so we're going to sort of dive into those topics uh, and then talk about um, some other things that will come up. So I'm, I'm going to dive right in, um, Hans, and ask you, Early uh, earlier this week, there was a press report that came from Bloomberg News that, um, if true, is really, um, I think, significant, suggesting that the Chinese nuclear arsenal 
may have some significant challenges when it comes to reliability and operability um, due to corruption in the Chinese rocket forces. And so I wonder if you could just sort of walk us through what this report um, suggests and uh, what it might mean for us. Well, on the uh, the silos uh, and the rocket force in general, we don't have a whole lot of information about what exactly what it is um, they um, detected or rather the extent of it. But the, the gist of it was uh, basically that we had um, some examples of corruption affecting the way they operate and construct um, the, the, the missile force. And one was related to, um, you know, some, some missiles were reported to have uh, water instead of fuel. Um, and uh, another L, uh, example was that the lids that are designed, that are built and put on top of the silos and are supposed to swing open to allow the, the, the missiles to fly out um, had defects. And, and so that degraded the, apparently degraded the, um, um, you know, the, the, the credibility of the operation of the force. Uh, but, but as I said, we, we don't really know very much in terms of, uh, you know, the extent of this. Um, is it something that has affected all the lids and all the silos in these three missile fields? Does it also concern lids to, um, you know, some of the solid, uh, some of the liquid fuel missiles, you know? Um, so there are lots of things. And, and so far, it's in a way, I think it's been a little surprising. We haven't heard any follow-up stories uh, about this. It's not like, you know, nobody's come out and said they were wrong or, Nobody's come out and said, you know, what I actually meant to say was this or I mean, so it's been kind of quiet about it. Um, so I don't know really what to make of it other than the report itself. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it, I think it's hard always to know what's going on inside the nuclear arsenal of a country. I don't have to tell you, Hans, you spend a lot of time just trying to figure out what's going on inside the U.S. nuclear arsenal, but obviously there's a lot of speculation and, and I think understandable concern about the growth in China's nuclear forces. They are obviously investing a huge amount of money and a huge amount of effort to build up the number of nuclear weapons at their disposal. I mean, Heather, when you saw this report, how did it strike you? You know, you and I have talked a lot about sort of what's the appropriate American response to the challenges of deterrence in both Russia and China. But I'm wondering how it struck your ear since you're obviously um, pretty embedded in the nuclear debate these days. Yeah, so I, I think Hans's summary was great. I do want to give it a little bit more context because actually well, I read the story a bit differently. The big story to me is actually about corruption within China. Um, and that the discovery of what's going on with these missiles is very much tied to Xi's purges of the Chinese military leadership, specifically within the rocket force, the strategic rocket forces. Um, and it, it seems that, you know, uh, the I think it was eight senior defense officials who were removed. Um, it was because they had, you know, been been fibbing about what was going into those missiles and what the uh, what the capability actually was. And so I, I think that Hans has rightly captured part of the story is we actually don't know um, just like what actually is China's uh, missile capability, uh, strategic capability. It raises a whole host of really important questions like, you know, is China's strategic force, is this just a Potemkin arsenal? 
Um, what do these internal issues mean for China's military going forward? What are the implications for the U.S., uh, particularly in light of the recent Strategic Posture Commission report that had some recommendations about what it means for strategic posture? So I, I think that um, that that absolutely does drive home the question that we just need to know more. Um, but for, for me, the, the corruption is also a really big part of the story and that Xi would you know, dismiss such senior defense officials over what was going on with strategic rocket forces. That says to me that Xi really values these and that he does not want a Potemkin arsenal uh, and that he is uh, he's willing to go to some extreme lengths to get the nuclear force that he uh, claims to want and seems to be pretty important for his vision. So that that was my take on it. But I mean, John, I feel like you've set yourself up to be the arbiter here. So what what, uh, what was your read of it? Like, what was your first thought when you read that story? You know, some say arbiter, some say host, you know, we can use whatever term we want. <clears throat> um, it, I, let me respond to something you just said, and then I'll give you sort of my take, which is, you got to remember when she came to power, it was on an anti-corruption campaign, right? So it's an interesting question, right? Does he does he really value nuclear forces and therefore he's willing to cut these guys loose who lied to him and, and clearly were or apparently, you know, diverting a lot of money for other purposes? Or is this just part of his MO, right? I mean, he he came to power rooting out corruption in the provinces. So this is part of his vision apparently about a modern China. It's not necessarily a transparent China, but it's one that's accountable to the leadership in part but based on my understanding that he recognizes that corruption is something that the pe- average people worry about and don't like and see. And so he can be seen as a champion of modern China by going about this. But he may value nuclear. I mean, I think anybody, anytime a leader invests billions of dollars in something, they want to get something for it. Um, I had two takes on this. Um, and one was reflected in a letter that the Federation of American Scientists wrote to Secretary Austin, recognizing he's a busy guy these days, and we'll get to that in a minute. Basically asking the question in the reports that the Defense Department has been putting out over the last year to Congress and the public, citing the rapid and unprecedented growth of China's nuclear forces, um, there was no mention of uh, endemic corruption. There was no mention that we might have intelligence that suggests these systems may not work as intended. And so the question really is, um, not are these reports accurate, but why aren't the reports to Congress a bit more balanced in recognizing, yes, they are growing their nuclear forces and they are investing a lot of money, but there may be doubts about how reliable and how quickly that they are um, coming up. And that gets to my second point, which is, you know, uh, Hans and I have been doing this a couple of more years than Heather, although Heather, you've got a lot, you know, more years under your belt. Um, We remember the threat inflation of the Soviet Union. The Pentagon used to put out an annual report called Soviet Military Power, which took the previous year's assessment and said, okay, last year was X. They've invested a huge amount of money in these capabilities. So the current year threat must be X plus the new money. And where we ended up was a place that didn't really reflect what the Soviet military capacity was at the end of the Cold War. Um, We thought there were 100 plus divisions of conventional troops ready to flood through Western Germany into Europe. And it turns out the Soviets had about 20 working divisions. And so there's a question in my mind about how we're going about the question, the process of evaluating the Chinese capability. The intent is clearly up, but I just don't know how much credence to put into the current estimates 
of Chinese military capabilities because I think they're still pretty opaque. And so my question back to you know you and and Hans would be, you know, what would you be suggesting to the Defense Department and the intelligence community these days about how to ensure both we're doing a good job estimating this threat, and two to to make sure the public has confidence that what we're estimating is a good basis for defense investments. And let me let me start with Heather and then turn to Hans. I mean, do you now have additional questions about how we're evaluating this threat or are you fairly confident that we're getting this about right? To me, this doesn't change a whole lot uh, in terms of, you know, if, if I was advising the Department of Defense on this, I would say this isn't a huge game changer, um, mainly because we don't know um, what's in them. We kind of ne- the thing is, we kind of never really knew for sure what was actually going on. And just to kind of demonstrate that point, I, w- I would quote uh, Vipin Narang. And Vipin made this um, com- this quote when he was still at MIT before he went into government. And, he, and this was in response to when the silos were discovered, thanks to the um, incredible research by Hans and his colleague, Matt Corda. Um, and so Vipin, then Professor Narang said, just because you build the silos doesn't mean you have to fill them all with missiles. They can be moved around. Uh, they also could be being built to be traded for arms control. There's a whole host of reasons for why those silos are there. That has not changed. Uh, We still don't know exactly what they're there for. If anything, this just kind of reinforces the point. Um, But the one point that I would want to push a little bit harder in light of this news is that maybe this is a great opening for arms control. You know, if China's having a hard time (laughs) filling all their missiles, uh, or if, um, you know, if... China uh, kind of wants to be considering, uh, have some sort of conversation about opacity or about transparency, rather. Um, I would say that this should be perceived by the U.S., by the current administration, as an opportunity to try to advance more of an arms control agenda. To be clear, I think the administration is already doing as much as they possibly can um, to, to uh, you know, pursue that effort. There was obviously the Biden G meeting in November, and that included a separate kind of arms control risk reduction conversation with the State Department. I know DOD also had a really unique dialogue with the Chinese uh, just this year, like I think it was uh, on Monday, actually. Um, And there was a DOD press release on that. And so I I would say, you know, should, is there some way to kind of take this news and use that to try to advance uh, arms control initiatives, risk reduction measures, more transparency, uh, and try to avoid the Chinese doubling down on their opacity because of this news. Um, but Hans, I'm I'm curious of your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, no, no, those are good uh, good questions, and uh, it's like there's there's one element that that has to do with thinking about, for example, how the Chinese themselves process this reality. Um, uh, and and how they themselves cope within the military ranks and certainly the political control of it, how, you know, in, how, you know, not only the construction of this massive enterprise, but also how do you actually operate such a force to to a, to a, to a, to this to the extent that it makes sense, you know, um, and this is where I think it's been interesting to monitor some of their training activities um, because some of their operations and the way they talk about it sort of brings home this challenge of, you know, driving around in the, in, in the Chinese landscape with mobile systems, um, you know, axles break, flat tires, um, humidity. Uh, there's a bunch of things that are really challenging to do. It's not just a question of flooding out a lot of launchers. Um, 
And so all countries that operate these systems have to go through that learning process and the Chinese as well, of course. Um, and also on the, on the, on the, on the missile silos themselves, like you said, yeah, I mean, we don't have a clear picture of how they intend to use them. I mean, they've been so quiet about why are we doing this? You know, there's, there's like very little conversation with the Chinese about why are they doing it? And, and so we can go from every, every hole is filled to, you know, 25 will be loaded and the rest will be, you know, a shell game. Um, uh, we have, I mean, this is the big unknown here, but this is an important and interesting conversation, of course, because it brings us to, to how we view this, how we read this from, from, from our side of the, the, the Pacific, um, that, that those kind of uncertainties, um, I think, get too little attention in, in sort of the, the official intelligence presentations. Um, I, I would like to see our officials uh, debate this more. I would like to see more of that being uh, sort of discussed, for example, in the Chinese military power report. Um, there's a bunch of uncertainty that's popping up in there that's relating to the strategy, you know. You know, do we know how this influences China's strategy? Do we know how it influences their no first use policy, their alert readiness levels, all these kind of things? Um, but in my book, uh, I think, you know, unfortunately, this is not a new thing, but I just think generally some of these kind of military intelligence assessments are very hooked on the technology. They're sort of very hooked on the numbers and, you know, and the systems um, or rather focused on that. Um, I would frankly like to see more of a discussion um, about, you know, these other aspects of it, these operational aspects. Um, so, but that's the world we live in, but uh, still that's where I'm falling. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I want to be clear, at least from my perspective, and I think both for Hans and, and Heather, I'll, I'll go ahead and guess you feel the same way. Um, you know, look, the, the job of the defense department planners and the intelligence assessment uh, officials is really hard. Right. I mean, China is not an easy target. And um, when you are talking about nuclear weapons that can target the United States or our allies, you don't want to be caught short. You don't want to underestimate the threat. And that's why you tend to have defense assessments and intelligence assessments that tend towards the more pessimistic and other people call it worst case assumption planning. Um, but you don't want to end up saying, well, maybe they probably don't work. So let's not account for them. And the challenge is when DOD and intelligence officials put out information, that worst case tends to become the baseline. And how that then factors into what is the appropriate American response becomes a political challenge, right? It's very difficult for a senator or a congressman or a president or an analyst in the Washington field to say, okay, China might have as many as 1,500 warheads in 2035, but don't worry about it. We'll be fine. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's much easier to say, yeah, they're building up and Russia's building up. So we need to think about building up as well. And I think that's largely what you got in the Strategic Posture Commission that was released at the end of last year. Um, so I personally would like to see a bit more humility or a bit more uncertainty portrayed in the documents. But I recognize that's not easy for DOD and the intelligence community to do. Uh, I do like Heather's point, which is, you know, in, in a normal world, we'd say to China, oh, by the way, your systems may not work all that well, but we can't bet on that. So let's see if we can get into a conversation. Um, and we should, personally, I think we should do that in a very humble way as well to say, look, your systems don't work all that great. And sometimes our systems don't work that great too. I mean, I always love pointing to the fact that things like the B-2 bomber, the most advanced strategic bomber in the world turns out 
not to do so well in the rain. Uh, and in fact, has to be kept in very uh, well-protected bunkers and, and hangars most of the time. DOD has corrected those problems, but these are complicated systems and, and sometimes we have problems. Speaking of complicated systems, it turns out the nuclear chain of command, and I don't know if you know this, Heather and, and Hans, the nuclear chain of command is really complicated. And it turns out um, that so is the sick leave policy at the Department of Defense. Um, <laughs> shocking. We, we, Absolutely we had, shocking. We, we had this really remarkable uh, episode this year where uh, after the fact, it turned out that the Secretary of Defense was not around because he was incapacitated uh, in intensive care. Uh, and it sparked this really re- important, I think, and renewed conversation about exactly what does the nuclear chain of command look like. Heather, do you feel comfortable walking us through what took place and, and the debate it sparked? Uh, sure, I can, I can I can give this a go. So uh, it, in recent days, it came to light that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin had gone in for surgery. Um, there were complications due to the surgery and that he had to return to the hospital and went into intensive care. And apparently all of this happened without him informing the White House or his deputy, I believe. Um, and while he was incapacitated, his deputy essentially was in charge. So that, that's kind of the quick summary there. Obviously, the secretary has since um, apologized and had a mea culpa. Um, but so the, this, this raises a lot of issues about uh, the, the health and communication among uh, those in the nuclear chain of command. Uh, I, I think I'll um, turn it back to you to walk through the nuclear chain of command, uh, because from, from my, well, actually, no, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. Uh, from, from from my understanding of it, the Secretary of Defense's role in the nuclear chain of command is largely an advisory role, where uh, it's the president who has the football. Well, the president's um, aide has the football, but the president has the biscuit, so a little card uh, that has the nuclear codes, uh, and then the football goes wherever the president goes, um, which is the device used for uh, for launching nuclear weapons. The, if the directive is given, then that really goes to uh, strategic command. Now, that sounds straightforward, but we know that it's not nearly that straightforward. And obviously, it would be incredibly context dependent. It would depend on why is the president um, choosing to launch nuclear weapons? How much time does um, he, she, or they have to make that decision? Um, who are the people around them when they're making, when they have to make that decision? And so from my perspective, the, the news about Austin, deeply disappointing, uh, but in terms of nuclear chain and command, chain of command um, from my understanding, this is more of an issue about uh, his role on the nuclear side as an advisor. And it's still deeply concerning, to be clear. I don't want to minimize this. Um, but John, now I will kick it over to you. Have I completely misrepresented uh, nuclear command and control and the role of the Secretary of Defense in there and embarrassed myself on a Friday? No, ab- absolutely not. You have shed light, although I think there are a couple of important details that I, I'm going to turn to Hans in a minute to to uh, discuss. But before, I'm going to school our chairman, David Rothkoff, on really how to do a break. Because what we're going to do in a second is take a little break, because uh, here at Deep State Radio, uh, the first chunk of discussion is free. But if you want to hear the rest, you need to become a subscriber to Deep State Radio. It turns out for only $5 a month, you can get the full podcast, not only here, but to the entire 
uh, arsenal of deep state radio podcasts, and you can get a lot more insight into these issues on national security, nuclear policy, uh, and 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 foreign affairs. Um, and so uh, I encourage you to go to deepstateradio.com, pay $5 a month, uh, and support these podcasts and get a whole lot smarter um, with the additional information. And so Hans, in just a second, we're going to turn to you. We're going to discuss in detail, but not classified detail, the nuclear chain of command. So please, for those uh, uh, paid listeners, bear with us for a minute. And for those that aren't subscribers, we're sorry to say goodbye to you now, uh, but hope you'll become a paid subscriber uh, in 2024.